brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do stand in honor of your word, that it is you speaking through the Apostle Paul and here in Ephesians, that you are speaking to us as well. We would come to you asking that your spirit would give us understanding, that he would help us to know, that he would enable us to apply uh, this precious word. We thank you so much for it. We thank you as well for, for Don. Kathy and their commitment to proclaiming uh, this message, your word, to those on the campus in Long Beach and, and training others to do so. Continue to bless him and continue to encourage him, and especially now uh, with his brother Glenn, Lord, in his circumstances. And I pray, God, that you would make us all committed every day to proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ in our word and in deed. And again, now please help us to focus our attention on you and apply your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, here in this text, again, Paul calls us to walk in wisdom. Uh, We talked about that last week. And he gives here three separate contrasting statements in order to communicate that message. And, And those three statements have the same structure where Paul says, not this, but that. If you look in verse 15, he says, not walking as unwise men, but as wise In verse 17, he says, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then again, in verse 18, he says, not getting drunk with wine, but being filled by the Spirit. First contrast is the primary one here. Again, as we spent time talking about that, to walk in wisdom. We focused last week on how. How does one walk in wisdom? And and Solomon gave probably the the most detailed and focused answer on that as he said in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. And so we see there, Solomon says, to, to obtain wisdom, to gain wisdom, first you must earnestly pray for it. Beg God for it. Cry out for it. And secondly, you must dig for it. You must dig. And we dig in God's word. And then Paul gives in verse 17 of Ephesians 5 that second contrast where he says, So then, don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. And again, how do we know God's will? How do we come to understand God's will? Just as with wisdom, it comes from the word, right? It comes from the Bible, the scriptures. 
So these two uh, first contrasts make sense. They seem to go together. Uh, Walking not as unwise, don't be foolish. Walk in wisdom, know the will of the Lord. All coming through our understanding and searching and, and praying to God through His Word. But then we hit verse 18. Paul says, don't get drunk. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems to come out of left field, doesn't it? I mean, what is, he's talking in general terms about walking in wisdom, not being foolish, knowing God's will. And all of a sudden he brings alcohol into the picture. Why this specific instruction, instruction about alcohol? Why does he bring up getting drunk? And how does that relate to being filled by the Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How, how do these relate to walking in wisdom? Well, I'm glad you asked these questions because we're going to try to answer them this morning. You know, as we look at this passage, I, I have to say, you know, there are a few texts in the Bible which have been just completely butchered. This is one of them. Completely misunderstood, misapplied. So many take that one phrase, be filled by the Spirit, they yank it out of its context, and then import on it some meaning that they think or feel that it's saying. You know, it has done so much damage to the church, so much harm to the cause of Christ. I'm grieved at what I've seen, what I've experienced, what I have heard regarding what people believe this being filled by the Spirit means and how it's been applied Men and women who have wrongly presumed that it means that they have the ability to impart the Holy Spirit, either by waving their hands or pointing at you, or even in some cases saying that they can breathe the Holy Spirit on you, or or saying, hey, be filled, giving a a direct command. You know, it's like they're ordering the Holy Spirit around like some errand boy. People then responding to that by falling down on the floor, convulsing wildly, frothing at the mouth, flopping around out of control like fish, others dancing recklessly through the aisles. And I've experienced and seen some of these things, and I have to ask, is this the work of the Holy Spirit? In one case, such wild ranting that I watched an older woman get knocked down and injured because of a lack of control. I've seen other so-called manifestations of being filled with the Spirit with uncontrollable laughter, sometimes lasting more than an hour. People howling like dogs or mooing like cattle. In some cases, even what's called a holy vomiting, where they literally vomit on the floor and declare that to be the work of the Spirit, purging sin, purging demons out of them. Right in church services. You know, it's appalling to me. It's frankly disgusting. It really bothers me. It really bothers me because this is being called and represented as a work of the Holy Spirit. But brothers and sisters, is that what we see in Scripture? Is that the kind of behavior and activity that comes about when the Holy Spirit of God moves within His people? Is this something that God encourages? I mean, if we really look and dig in the Scriptures, we see this kind of chaos and uncontrolled emotion was actually rebuked in the Bible, not encouraged. I think of the church in Corinth. They were pretty messed up. A lot of things going wrong in the church. And one of the things that was happening was they would gather together and everybody would have something that they would want to contribute. Something that they would want to say. A a prophecy, a tongue, a a word of encouragement, or just something that, that they just wanted to blurt out. And Paul was giving them instruction in chapter 14, starting in verse 26, about what they were to do and how they were to organize themselves. He said there, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble... Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks a tongue, it should be by two or at most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. 
But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Did you hear what Paul said? God is not a God of confusion. That's a word for disturbance, tumult, chaos, confusion. So if you go into any circumstance and you see a a group of people claiming to be believers and they're out of control and and convulsing wildly and doing all kinds of things and chaos and, and disturbances and tumult, that's not the Spirit at work. It's totally contrary to what Paul says here. God is not a God of confusion. He doesn't exhort, exhort, uh, encourage out of control behavior. And that doesn't mean that we don't express emotion to God. I'm not saying everybody sit there stiff, don't move a muscle. It's not the point. It's not the point. But God, as we gather together, he desires edification of one another, not ourselves. We don't come here for us. We come here for one another. And isn't one of the part of the fruit of the Spirit self-control? The great tragedy isn't just that how the Holy Spirit is being uh, uh, maligned and, and brought shame, but, but the fact of the matter is being filled by the Spirit is one of the most important, one of the most critical uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit. And, and to misunderstand that means we're, we're missing so much in the work that He would be doing in us. To rightly understand what it means to be filled by the Spirit is to help us to live for God and to walk in wisdom. And so we need to give careful attention to this text. We need to give careful attention to what is Paul saying here? What does he mean by this? And so to do that, we're going to look at two points this morning. The first is, what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? And secondly, second point is, what does that produce? What does being filled by the Spirit produce? Look again at verse 18. Paul says there, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with or by the Spirit. So again, we're back to that first question I asked. What, what does, how does alcohol get into the discussion here? Again, he's been talking about these general principles of, of wisdom and, and knowing the will of the Lord. And so, so why this specific command not to get drunk? Some people think Paul included this here because drinking was a big problem in the Ephesian church, just like it was in the church of Corinth. But Paul doesn't say anything else about it in the rest of the letter. And, and we don't have any evidence that that was the case, that that was a problem endemic in the whole church. Others think Paul may have brought this whole discussion in about not being drunk, being filled by the Spirit, because there was a, a practice in Gentile culture where uh, the god of wine, Dionysius, Uh, Worship services held in his honor were to drink a bunch of wine and get drunk and then live out this wild and reckless behavior as worship to him. So some think that that Paul is telling the Ephesians, you know, don't as you come to worship the one true God, don't you use alcohol as a means to uh, induce some kind of uh, worship. Now, that 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 makes sense. It's an interesting theory. But again, we don't have any evidence this was going on in the Ephesian church. Now, I think the reason for this specific exhortation that Paul is giving here is in the very next phrase. For this is, that is dissipation. That's a word that means sensual indulgence, a a wild, undisciplined life, disorderly conduct, immorality, a lack of self-control and self-restraint. 
Paul's saying here that, that drunkenness is a perfect example of the activity that demonstrates an unwise person, a foolish person. Things which somebody who's not walking in wisdom would do. And it is true that it's the epitome of foolishness and it leads to all other kinds of sins, doesn't it? In fact, I was watching, uh, I saw an episode of Dr. Phil. Yes, I confess. I had watched him a uh, couple times. And one, one of the things that I saw, he had a man on his show that, uh, who had in an uncontrollable rage killed his wife and also the man that he thought was having an affair with her. He's completely mistaken, but he got drunk one night, completely lost control, and murdered two innocent people. One study showed that a third of those in prison had uh, said that they, they were under the influence of alcohol or drugs at the time of their crime. In fact, I want you to turn to Proverbs 23. Solomon gives a picture here of, of the effects of alcohol, the effects getting drunk. Solomon, in fact, himself uh, uh, played around with alcohol. He talks about it in Ecclesiastes 2, how he tried strong drink. Let's just see what would happen. For a wise man, very foolish. <laughs> but this is what Solomon said in Proverbs 23, and we'll look at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will look for another drink. And that sums it up right there, doesn't it? That sums it up. And I think this, this picture is what Paul had in mind when he brought this whole issue up in Ephesians 5. In fact, there in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 31, that first phrase, do not look upon wine, in the Septuagint is actually translated, do not get drunk with wine. And that's the exact same words that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, 18. Solomon also said in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. So I think as Paul is discussing this whole topic of wisdom and, and versus foolishness, that uh, he uses the drunk person as a poster boy for one lacking in wisdom, one engaging in foolish behavior. And so Paul says it's a sin to be under its control. It's a sin to get drunk. With wine. Now, in Paul's day, it was wine. It was, you know, vino. It was the fruit of the grape. Booze. But the same principle applies to any substance, right? Any substance that uh, can influence and that you can lose self-control to. We have many exotic drugs, even certain medications, that if we are not careful and cautious, will draw us in to be under their control. And in thinking about drinking, again, we must understand here that drinking... Paul's not saying drinking is a sin, right? Right? Getting drunk is a sin. Paul doesn't prohibit any consumption of alcohol, but not to consume it to the point of losing control of your mental faculties, of, of not being in control. But again, this doesn't give us carte blanche to, to drink, because in some cases, some circumstances, it may be a sin for you to drink. 
If you feel guilty when you drink, if you believe in your heart, you know, this is something I shouldn't do, then don't do it. Then it is wrong for you. Romans 14 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Or if you are drinking around someone else who thinks it is wrong or is bothered by it, then you need to refrain. You would be sinning if you knowingly would drink around a person that struggles with it. Romans 14 talks about that, not not causing a fellow brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And we need to be sensitive with this. Yes, we have freedom in Christ, but that freedom does not give you license to harm the conscience of someone else. If you're somebody who has been mastered by alcohol in the past, then perhaps drinking for you at any point in time would be wrong because it could tempt you to go back into what you had been previously mastered by. We're to flee temptation, not to give into it. Now, again, that does not saying that any drinking is wrong, but we have to consider the circumstances, consider the situation, consider our conscience and the conscience of those around us. My personal feeling is to I err on the side of caution with this. I, I don't want to be a, a cause to stumble, a stumbling for somebody else. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to drink, but, but I've chosen not to. I remember I used to work... When I used to work, uh, the guys, we would go out sometimes, and I would go with them to uh, spend some time with them. And we had dinner together, and they would drink uh, drinking wine. Or, and, and I would do that, too, with them. I'm not getting drunk, but, but I remember one comment that one of them made to me one time. He says, I thought you Christians don't drink. Uh, hmm. And well, it's, I told him, I tried to explain this passage to him, but then it made me wonder, you know, this guy felt like this was not something a believer should do. And I, you know, I don't want to mess my testimony up with these guys. So I just chose not to drink. So I'm just saying these things to you so that you would consider your circumstances and consider this whole issue because it is a sensitive one. Alcohol has done great damage, not only to our culture, but all through history. I looked back in sermons, uh, Spurgeon's sermons, and he talked about how that was an incredible vice in the late 1800s in England. It had to destroy many families. So again, be careful in considering this, and don't be a stumbling block to another. Now, thinking about as, drug, as far as drugs are concerned, is it stating the obvious that those can be even worse? Not to even touch them. In fact, they're illegal. So on two counts, we shouldn't even mess with them. Now, I'm not... Not going to get into this whole medicinal marijuana thing, which I think is an oxymoron, but what about medication? What about those drugs that are used for pain, for surgery, for uh, sickness? Are they, those okay? Many of those can totally put you out and be under their control completely. Well, it's helpful to remember what Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23 when he said, "...drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments." So Paul saw a benefit, a medicinal purpose in using, in that case, wine to help Timothy. So it's not prohibited, but again, we must be careful because pain medication has been a source of addiction and mastery in some people's lives, right? So again, be careful, be careful. In verse 18 here, Paul contrasts the prohibition to drunkenness with the positive command to be filled by the Spirit. Again, the question is, now, now what does that mean exactly? How does it relate to being drunk? The contrast that Paul gives is focusing on what you are being controlled by. That's the emphasis here. He's not saying or comparing the Holy Spirit to some substance or, or some mystical force or you know, some, some entity that, that can fill you up like wine can and take control. 
I think we can get that idea from the, the word with there. Actually, a better translation would be by, be filled by the Spirit. The focus of the preposition there is on means, it's on how. What he's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is doing the filling. He's not the content of the filling. You see, it's not, it's not wine that's being contrasted with the Holy Spirit here. It is the state of being drunk that is contrasted with the state of being filled. Being filled by the Spirit simply means this, to be under His control. To be abiding in Him, whereby He enables you to serve God and to display God's characteristics through you. And this phrase, be filled by the Spirit, it's the only time that Paul uses it in any of his letters. He gives this phrase here, and then he doesn't give much, much explanation with it. And so that's what pe- tempts people to, to go outside of this passage immediately and try to find other things to import within the text. But we first need to understand the basic hermeneutic. What did the author, Paul, intend for the hearers, here are the Ephesians, and by extension us, what did he intend for the hearers to understand? We have to remember that Paul spent how many years with these Ephesians? Almost three, right? Spent almost three with them, teaching them on a regular basis. In fact, the church at Ephesus was probably the most taught, well-taught church in the world at the time, save perhaps the church at Jerusalem. And remember, too, Paul's first interaction in Acts 19, when he came upon these Ephesians, the first doctrine that actually came up in conversation was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, as he had asked them if they had been given the Holy Spirit. Paul gives several references in Ephesians in this letter to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think it was a common topic. I think Paul had given them much instruction while he was with them. They had likely been taught the many examples in the Old Testament that described as the Holy Spirit would come upon someone and fill them, that he would enable them to do certain works for God. In fact, the book of Judges, the book of Samuel has many examples of that. Also, too, Paul's close associate, Luke, He's the only other New Testament writer that talks about being filled by the Spirit. Many examples that he gives there are two different activities. The Holy Spirit coming upon a person suddenly and empowering them for a specific work or a specific task. One example of that is uh, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, who in Luke one sixty seven it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he prophesied, prophesied concerning his son. Or in Acts 2, verse 4, at Pentecost, it says there that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, preaching the gospel in languages they had never studied, but that others who had been coming from distant lands were able to understand. Luke also gives several examples of a person being filled by the Spirit, not necessarily for a specific action or activity, but as an ongoing characterization of that individual, an ongoing abiding relationship. That's what's said in Acts 6, when the apostles wanted to appoint someone to care for the widows in the church. They said, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Interesting that he connects those two here, just as is done in Ephesians 5. Luke 4.1 says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So here we see uh, the Son of God, who is also fully man. How he lived as a human was being led by the Spirit. He was filled by the Spirit. And that's how he was able to do what God did through him. We often use this expression, uh, he was full of fear, right? Or full of joy or full of sorrow. 
that describes someone who's given over to that emotion, right? In fact, you could characterize them as being under control of that emotion at that point. In a similar manner, to be full of the Spirit, to be filled by the Spirit, is to be yielded to His control, to be characterized by His activity. We have to understand that being filled by the Spirit is not the same as being indwelt. It's not the same as being baptized by the Spirit. It's not the same as being sealed by the Spirit. Those are three different actions or ministries of the Holy Spirit that happen at salvation. They are automatic and they are permanent. When you understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, when your eyes are open to understand the truth that He died for your sins as the perfect sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and to bring you in a right relationship with God, when when that makes sense to you, when you commit to the Lord Jesus Christ, when you understand these things, it is at that moment that the Holy Spirit transforms your heart, that He comes to dwell within you, that He baptizes or immerses you into the body of Christ, and that He seals you, gives you the eternal security that you are the Lord's child and He will never forsake you. Those things happen at salvation. But this filling by the Spirit is something that comes about after. And it can come and go. Otherwise, Paul would not have commanded us to be filled by the Spirit. It's part of our ongoing experience of sanctification in the Christian life. And so we are again back to the question, well, how? Get to it, Tim. Come on. How do you, how are you filled by the Spirit? Is there a special prayer? Certain steps that you need to take? Is there a process that is required? Do you need to have certain classes to understand it? Is it a random event? You're just walking along one day and pow, you're filled by the Spirit. Well, let's make a few important Grammatical observations here in verse 18. Grammar is important. There's a few things that we need to pay attention to. The first is we've already talked about. Paul gives here a command. He says, be filled by the Spirit. He's not giving a suggestion. And this command is given in the present tense. It's to be something that is ongoing. It's not a past act or something that happened only in the past. Otherwise, Paul would not have used the present tense. He would have used a a perfect or an aorist tense in Greek. And notice, too, that Paul does not say fill or fill yourselves, but he says be filled. That's a passive command. That's a passive voice. That is saying that you aren't the one doing the activity. It is being done to you. Which makes this a peculiar question. Why a passive command then? Why am I being commanded to do something which is actually being done to me? That doesn't quite make sense. Why is this phrase in the form of a command if we aren't the ones actually doing the filling? Well, this is important to understand. It simply means this. It means that we are to put ourselves in the position to be filled. The Spirit is doing the action, but you and I play a role in being fit or ready for Him to do that action. Paul gives this as a command because we can get in the way of God's Spirit working in our lives, can't we? We must put ourselves in a position to be under His control, His influence. And again, the question is how? How do we do that? Okay, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. (laughs) To answer this, we have to remember something. We're in the middle of a letter, right? We're in the middle of a correspondence, a communication between Paul and the church at Ephesus. And we have to remember that this statement is coming in the midst or flow of that letter. The temptation to look elsewhere outside of what he has said already in this letter has to be avoided. We, we have to avoid the temptation to pluck this phrase out and then import meaning into it, try to dissect it 
apart from all the things that Paul has said. I mean, every communication is that way, right? We have to always go back to the three most important principles in biblical interpretation. The first one is context. The second one is context. And the third one is context. Jack taught you well. Yes. It's context, right? What has already been said and what is said after that? These aren't random collection of statements, random proverbs thrown together that have no connection to one another. Paul has been already discussing and talking about certain things that have led up to this point. Paul has a history with these people as well. What Paul has already told us, especially about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, within this letter, we need to take into account in trying to understand what he is saying here. How is the sanctification process being worked out? What has Paul said about that? What has he said about the Holy Spirit? Has he used any of this terminology about being filled other places within this letter? You remember how Paul began the letter, right? He began by talking about God's salvation, by talking about how we are blessed, every spiritual blessing in heavens, in Christ has come about through the work of the Trinity, through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our adoption as sons, our being forgiven, our being placed within the household of the Lord, the fellowship that we now have with the Trinity. Paul described, too, how God took us from a state of spiritual death. We were in the spiritual graveyard, right? And God made us alive, brought us up, raised us up together with Christ. He talked about there how he freed us when we were unable to free ourselves from sin, when we were unable to release ourselves from bondage to Satan. Paul talked about, too, that we were released from the wrath of God. He spoke of God's mercy, of his grace, of his love, and how he redeemed us by Christ's shed blood on the cross. And then as a result of that, Paul made particular focus and gave particular attention not only to the fact that, that through the Lord Jesus Christ, as we repent of our sins and we're forgiven, that we are brought to faith, that we are made alive in Him, that we now have a relationship with Him, that we now have fellowship with the Trinity. Paul also took great pains and great care to communicate. We also have fellowship with one another. That this just wasn't some solo event, some solo act. But over and over, Paul has stressed within this letter that we have fellowship with each other. That we are all members of his church, one body. That we've all been brought together as one family. We don't have all our own rooms and go off and do our own thing together. We're all in the same family room together. We've been Built into one building, a growing building, Paul talked about. We are not independent individuals, but Paul has talked about the fact we are interdependent members. This has been emphasized all through. And, and who's responsible for that growth, that connectedness, that building process within the body of Christ? Ephesians 2.22 gives the answer. Paul said there, we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit's primary activity is to weave us together, to uh, interconnect us to each other, to, to give us gifts that we might use for the benefit and edification of one another, that, to, to enable us, to empower us, to be able to carry out all the one another's so we might build up the body of Christ. That is a work of the Spirit. The Spirit has also brought about unity. Remember Paul's instruction in Ephesians 4, 3, that we are to be diligent to preserve that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember that? The Spirit has done that work. 
And then in 4.12, that Paul told us that we are to be equipped. We're equipped by the leaders, the shepherds in the body, so that we do the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. You see, it is the Holy Spirit who does the work of building, and we are the means of that activity. We are the means of that building. And that's why in 5.2, we're commanded to walk in love towards one another. And if you remember, that walk in love means that we are to use such things as our speech to edify one another. Another building term, to build one another up. And I brought that specific point up because you remember what he said in the very next verse in Ephesians 4.30. He said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. Our sin, especially our speech, grieves the Spirit and inhibits His work in us. You want to hinder the work of God in this church? You want to uh, be in the way of and not put yourself in the position to be filled by the Spirit, to be used by Him? You want to quench His activity here? Then keep saying or say mean things about one another or tear one another down in your speech. That will inhibit the work of the Spirit, among other things. So you see, to be filled by the Spirit, it has to do with understanding what His responsibility and His role within the body is. What He is doing in this church. And what my responsibility is to the body as well. Because His intent is to use me, to use you within that building. Paul isn't saying here that I'm to be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, that I'm to be filled by Him so that just for my individual walk with God. So I need to do what I'm supposed to do so that I am maturing in Christ myself. That's not the point here. It's not just about me. It's about us. Being filled by His Spirit means that you are putting yourself in a place where you are being used by Him in His activity to build up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. To do the work that he accomplishes or desires to accomplish in you. So again, being filled to be empowered by that isn't just for you to live out the Christian life primarily. But it is for you to be building up the body. It is for you to be preserving the unity of the church. It is for you to be helping others become more like Jesus. So that we all together would reflect the image of Christ. You remember we talked about that back in Ephesians 4 where Paul had said, you know, to do the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ to the measure of the stature which is the fullness of Christ to a mature man. And, and there he was presenting the picture of the church as a whole needs to be brought together and matured so that all of us together look like Jesus. Not just a few individuals out there. God's goal isn't just to get you by yourself across the finish line. It's so that all of us come across that line together. Together. It's not just about me going off to have my quiet time and and being encouraged and going on with my day and basking in my personal communion with God, being filled by His Spirit. I'm not downplaying that. That is good and important. We need to be spending that time with our Lord. But we cannot disconnect it from the whole work that the Spirit desires to accomplish among this body. And being filled by Him, He's not just seeking to make you closer to Jesus, but to make us all closer to Jesus. And being filled by Him, the Holy Spirit is not working in you just so that you mature into Christ-likeness, but so that we all together would be like Christ. Again, I've, I've said this many times, but this is really the, uh, the thread that's woven through the entire letter here. It's not just me and God. It's not about me and God. It's about we and God, right? Right? 
And to do this, we need to be dependent on him. We need to pray. Ephesians 1, 17, Paul talks about and prays for the Ephesians that they would be given wisdom from the Spirit to know God's will, to know his word. And in Ephesians 3, 16, listen to Paul's prayer again regarding the Spirit. He says that, He would grant you, that is, God the Father, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There's that filling terminology. It's the idea of being empowered by God to do His work so that that the work, the character, the attributes of God will be flowing through us. And to be filled by His Spirit, to to walk in wisdom. If you remember, let's go back to the three phrases here in Ephesians 5. We have to walk in wisdom, to not be foolish, to not be unwise, to know the will of the Lord. All those things are interconnected and linked to one central idea, and that is the Word of God. That is the Word of God. To not be foolish, we need to know His Word. To walk in wisdom, we need to know His Word. And to be filled by His Spirit, we need to know and be immersed in His Word. Look at Colossians three uh, sixteen for a moment to see this. This is a time we will look at something outside the letter, but hopefully you see that it's uh, you know often that's the only verse that's referenced when we talk about being filled by the Spirit. But I hope that you see that actually Paul the whole time in his letter has been leading up to this idea of being filled by the Spirit as he's described the activity of the Spirit within us and that we are to put ourselves in a position to be used by Him. In that action in the church. To be filled by His Spirit, we see in Colossians, means that we need to know also His Word. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This text sounds very similar to Ephesians 5.18-20, doesn't it? In fact, the only difference really is the command. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. In Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then in both passages, he talks about this result or this product of speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and, and singing to one another and being thankful. And then in both letters, in Colossians 3, he goes on to talk about instruction in the family. Same thing that he does in Ephesians 5. Both of these texts are very closely linked together. Colossians 3.16 is essentially telling us the same thing that he's saying in Ephesians 5.18, but a little bit different way. That how you ultimately place yourself under the Holy Spirit's control to be used by Him is to be saturated in His Word. If you remember too, what is the word called later in Ephesians chapter 6? When, when Paul talks about the armor of God, what does he say about the word of God? It is the sword of the spirit, right? Or when he talks about, uh, Peter does in 2 Peter 1.20, who is the one responsible for empowering, enabling, caring, bearing those men who wrote the scriptures? Who's the one, the author behind it? The Holy Spirit is the one that enabled the writers of Scripture. So this book is a book that the Holy Spirit has written. It is His sword to be used by Him. And that's why we have to be immersed in it, so that we would understand and and be yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Let's bring this all together. A lot's been said so far, but as we immerse ourselves in God's Word, 
And as we immerse ourselves in God's people, then we are yielding to the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're putting ourselves in a position to be filled by Him. And did you notice, too, what what happens? What is produced then when we are filled by the Spirit? What is produced then when we are yielded to His control, as we are immersed in His Word, as we are immersed in His people? Well, that's where verses 19 to 21 come into the picture. Paul there says again, "...speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ." So let's consider our second point this morning here. What is produced when we are filled by His Spirit? Paul gives here five participles, five different uh, verbs here to describe the response or the result of one who is filled by his spirit. Speaking, singing, making melody, being subject, giving thanks. Some interpret or translated these participles as commands, but that is not the normal function of a participle. And the structure here in the Greek doesn't really fit other examples of that elsewhere. But also, too, if Paul intended to be, these to be commands equivalent to the main command to be filled, then he would have written them as imperatives. Why make them participles? Others say that these participles are just describing the means or how we are filled by the Spirit. But then that would not uh, match the parallel construction that's given in verses 18 and 19. Where Remember, first Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, and then he gives the result, right? For that or because that results in dissipation. And so in like manner, he says, but be filled by the Spirit. So then implied verses 19 and following are the result of being filled by the Spirit. Just like in Galatians 5, when Paul says to walk by the Spirit, and then in the end of that section, he gives the fruit of the Spirit. What does a person look like? What is on display in their life as they are walking by the Spirit of God? So in like manner here, Paul gives us five characteristics, five attributes of the person who is filled by the Spirit. And the first one is speaking to one another in song. He says speaking to one another in psalm or hymn or spiritual song. The word speaking there is a word that means to talk or speak, but its emphasis is on the sound. And essentially it means to communicate, but it focuses on the sound which is communicated. In this case here, what what is that sound? What is the focus? He speaks of psalms, which are poems, Old Testament poems that are sung. He's speaking of hymns, which are those that are festival hymns of praise that are directed in in praise to the Lord Jesus. He speaks of spiritual songs or or odes, those uh, songs which are uh, in reference to God's acts being praised or glorified. All of them relate to what? Singing, right? It's talking about singing here, singing to one another. Yes, also speaking poetry, speaking the word, but, but primarily the sound of, of singing. All three of these are, are lyrics, these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, lyrics from Scripture or related to, coming to, uh, related to Scripture that are sung to one another. Paul then gives a second characteristic Singing, it's closely related to the first. He says it directly. Singing and then intertwined with this word, making melody. Making melody is the same word as for psalms. It originally had the idea of a, of an, a stringed instrument or plucking a bow. And it came to mean a song of praise. And in fact, in the New Testament, that's always how it is used. It's in relation to praising God in song. 
These two words are tightly coupled together. And Paul is using in these first three terms, they're all related to the same thing, right? Speaking to one another in song, singing, making melody. First participle, speaking, focuses on our ministry to one another, as seen by that phrase. The second and third focus on the vertical component of making melody, singing to the Lord. Our singing is to bless God and to edify His people. And we need to stop here a minute and think. Let's think a moment for what, what Paul what is Paul saying here? What is he focusing on? Our singing is to again bless God to edify His people. But these are the product of something, right? They're the product. They're the result of being spirit filled. They are what is produced when we are yielded to His control. I have a very important statement to make here. Listen, if if you are filled by His Spirit, what should you expect to be evident in your life? What should you expect? Singing. Singing. Singing should be produced. A Spirit-filled soul is a singing soul. Singing is what Christians do. It's a natural manifestation of the Holy Spirit in control and in one's life. You don't have to to force it. You don't have to fake it. It has nothing to do with ability. It has nothing to do with giftedness or comfort level with singing. It's a a natural response. If the Holy Spirit is at work in you, then you will sing. You will sing with one another. You will sing alone. You will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You You will sing here. You will sing at home. You will sing out loud. You will sing in your heart. But you will sing. That's a mark that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Paul gives it right here. You will sing. And you know, we are, we are so quick to criticize the emotional expression of others as they sing to God. And yet at times, we can be as lifeless as a brick when we sing. Sometimes I feel like, you know, we could just put a stack of bricks up together and more noise would come out of them. When we don't sing at all, or we don't sing with a full heart, I, I have to ask the question, are, are we truly being filled by His Spirit? Again, I'm not, I'm not talking about the ecstatic, wild behavior I was describing earlier, but if the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you, you will sing. You will sing. You won't be able to help it. And again, these aren't commands. These aren't exhortations. Hey, you need to be singing more. Come on. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is these are a fruit, a product, a result of the work of the Spirit in your life. So the exhortation is be filled by the Spirit. Then the songs will come out. Then you will put on display your joy in the Lord as you sing with one another, to one another, and to the Lord. And again, that singing can be also at home or, or, or uh, you know, in your car or, or as well, but also with God's people. Also with God's people. You know, Paul makes a great point of emphasis here. Three of these five participles are directly connected to singing. And I could make a case that the fourth one, giving thanks, is also indirectly connected. Because giving thanks is giving praise to God, right? Verbal praise. So if if nearly 80% of Paul's uh, instruction here of of what he indicates as a result of being filled by the Spirit is, is related to giving God praise, particularly in song... I think we need to pay attention to that. I think we need to see the emphasis that a spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. And brothers and sisters, I, I just have this question for us to consider. Could Calvary Bible Church be 
described as a spirit-filled church based on our singing. That's our desire, brother. Again, not the focus isn't singing here. The focus is being filled by His Spirit so that that comes out of us. This isn't a diatribe on, on music. If you listen to me sing, you'd be saying, Tim, stop! But you know, sometimes we talk about that. That's a distraction. Some of the most enjoyable times of singing I've had have been around those who sing awful, but their hearts are crying out to God. I remember being uh, involved in a ministry in the inner city, and, and one of the nights they would gather, and they'd, they'd gather together to sing. And, man, everybody was off key. We were in this little room. I mean, but those have been the most blessed times, the most blessed times, because they're being sung by spirit-filled people. So again, my encouragement would be spirit-filled. Be spirit-filled. And Paul adds a fourth characteristic of a spirit-controlled life. Here it's giving thanks. The Old Testament, this term literally meant to confess. And when we are confessing or declaring the works of God and who He is, that naturally moves itself into gratitude. And so he says here that the spirit-filled believer is always giving thanks. He says here that the spirit-filled believer is always giving thanks for all things. That every circumstance spirit-filled Christian sees as God is using that circumstance for my good and His glory. And so I'm grateful for it. Spirit-filled believer is always giving thanks to God. That may seem like an obvious point, but, but sometimes we have to ask ourselves, where is this praise being directed? It's always directed to God. Thanksgiving is always to Him. And that spirit-filled believer is always giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's because He is the only one that we have, that has been given us the the reason to give thanks, right? Because of His sacrifice, we can be grateful. And gratitude, just like singing, just like speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, just like making melody in our hearts, gratitude is also evidence of a Spirit-filled life. It's evidence that the Spirit's at work in you. So again, it's important to ask yourself, are you prone to to complaining? Are you prone to discontentment? Do you find yourself often giving thanks to the Lord? Like singing, this is an indicator of the Spirit's work in your life. The last one being subject, we'll cover more later when I hit verse 22, but it's this idea here that Paul is talking about. It's not a mutual submission he's focusing on. It is being subject to those who are in authority in our lives. And that a spirit-filled Christian is one who is subject to authority. But let's take a step back here. What, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? We see that being filled by the Spirit produces both, both vertical action and horizontal activity. That singing and gratitude, those are directed to God. But also that singing and, and also being su- subject to one another, that's directed within the body to one another. And again, this is just Paul's emphasizing in the results, the product of the Spirit at work in our life is not just a thing for our own edification, right? It's not just an individual thing. It's not just something that this special relationship I have alone with God. But Paul is talking about here that we must have wisdom. We must not be foolish. We must know the will of God. We must be filled by His Spirit in order to be used by Him in His church. We see that in what Paul describes And so we would ask ourselves this, am I characterized by singing? Am I characterized by gratitude? Am I I characterized by submitting to authorities in my life? 
Again, I'm not talking about what you've done in the past, but how about now? How about now? Do you see in your life love, joy, peace? Finish it with me. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, don't, don't work at displaying those characteristics. These two texts are not talking about that, but they're talking about putting yourself in a position so that God would work them through you. There are other passages that command us to rejoice, that command us to be patient, that command us to love. But here Paul is focusing on the fact that as you are being in submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, they will come out. So if you're a person that struggles with these things, that struggles with compassion, that struggles with being patient with, say, oh, your kids, then, then understand and work at what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Immerse yourself in the people of God. Remind yourself of the gospel of grace. Remind yourself that God is the one who will work through you. Pray for His Spirit to give you understanding. And pray for His Spirit to empower you to live out the instruction given in His Word. Confess your sins. And again, I repeat, immerse yourself in the Word of God. And immerse yourself in the people of God. And as you do these things, God's Spirit will work in and through you to build up His body. Not only will you be blessed as an individual, but you will be a blessing to the body of Christ. That is the work of the Spirit. And God's grace, we know, is sufficient to bring this about. But we have to pursue it. We have to take action. We have to be filled by His Spirit. Let's pray. Our Lord, take, take your word, embed it in our hearts. Let it dwell in us richly. Lord, move in us to, to understand what it means to be filled by your spirit. And how that comes about as we immerse ourselves in your word, as we uh, spend time with, with your people your spirit works within your body and works within us as we seek to be holy vessels to be used by you. Lord, grant that in us so that we could see our church, that we could see Calvary Bible Church be moved and and continue to be transformed by the work and power of your spirit in us and that we would be a light to this community, that that we would be a light on the college campuses, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would shine forth not only in word from us but also in our deeds and also in how we treat one another. We want your spirit, Father, to do the work in us. Help us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Lord, enable us to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ as the Spirit works within us. Thank you for your Son. Lord, it's all in His name and for Him we pray. Amen.